Heavenly Father, it's good to sing with in your church with your people, and now we have the privilege of hearing your word. I need it as much as anyone here. There's no one, Lord, in greater need of your grace and greater need of Jesus than I am. So uh, meet with me, help me, bless me, uh, do, Lord, what I cannot do myself so that we may all hear your voice, not mine, and do what you ask. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Good morning. Everybody good? I've met a few new people here uh, this morning in both morning services. If you're new to Crosspoint, welcome to the second service of this particular Sunday. We meet at 9 o'clock and at 10.30 and later this afternoon in a new service at 5.30 this afternoon. Keep that in mind if, if the morning does not work out for you. If you're here for the first time, welcome. Today is a, a special Sunday. Today we are going to celebrate communion. We're going to take a tiny little piece of, of unleavened bread and a tiny little bit of juice, and we're going to do this in our simple 21st century way to obey Jesus. On the night He was betrayed, we'll read later in the service, Jesus took bread and He took a cup, and He explained that the bread, they were celebrating the Jewish Passover. The bread represented His body, which was about to be given for them. The cup opened up a new promise, made a new promise from God to people. And the cup that they had that night was representative of His blood, which would soon be shed on a Roman cross. I'm telling you this because there's a lot of confusion regarding communion. Many churches across the world will take these elements today. Too many people, I'm afraid, will do it thinking and imagining and sometimes explicitly being taught that what they're doing is sort of making a deposit into a spiritual bank account. And the way it's been explained to them looks something like this. They will do a few things that someone told them to do, sometimes from tradition, sometimes people will point to things in the Bible and say, if you do these things, these are spiritual deposits in your bank account. Then you're going to leave here, and you're going to sin, and you're going to blow it, and you're going to embarrass yourself and do things that you shouldn't have done, and those are like withdrawals made against your account. And what God will do at the end of your life is He'll call in the balance, and He'll discover that probably you're overdrawn, and then something terrible will happen. Or maybe you'll be one of those few who's made enough deposits, and you'll go straight into God's presence. That is the offer of religion, whatever it's called. Man-made religion, man-made tradition tells you here's a few of the things you do. If you do these things and you do these things more than you do this other list of forbidden things, then maybe someday you'll be okay. And the trouble with that is no one will show you the scoreboard. And you can't ever see your balance. Jesus had something entirely different in giving us communion. As I'll read to you later from the Bible, communion is a memorial. It's a look back at the cross. It's a look back in gratitude that at the cross, because His body was given, because His blood was shed, Jesus paid everything that stood against us. He took our debt and nailed it to His cross, the Bible says. That means that we're not earning, we're remembering 
We're not trying to catch up. We're looking back at the one who paid in full for our sins, and we are gratefully, obediently saying thank you. That means if you haven't trusted Jesus as Savior, this doesn't apply to you. You're invited to trust Jesus, but celebrating communion will do you no good. You'll be remembering something, a historical event that has not yet meant anything to you personally. And in this service, as I explained to you from Luke's gospel, what Jesus spelled out were the terms of following him. I'm praying that at some point during that sermon, even in the middle of it, perhaps at the end when I try to close and tell, put you at a decision point and put you at that crossroads, that you'll do something miraculous, that you'll give up on yourself and you'll start trusting him. Because that's what Jesus was talking about in Luke chapter 9. If you'll look with me there, we're going to return to Luke chapter 9 for some time. We've been alternating between moving through the Gospel of Luke and doing some more topical and, and doctrinal teaching. And this long journey following Jesus through the Gospel of Luke, we've reached the ninth chapter. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one near you. And because we're only going to be looking at two paragraphs, you'll really be helped if you can have the Bible open in front of you. Or if you need to, turn your Bible on, okay? If you're going to turn your Bible on, may I also invite you to silence your Bible. Um, we've had all kinds of ringtones in this church, salsa, mambo, disco, heavy metal one Sunday, which was a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> I kind of lost the people on the right hand over here on that particular Sunday because the poor guy who had it couldn't find his phone on top of everything else. People were trying to help him find it, and it was, it was quite a scene. And I would prefer if we weren't distracted that way. We're looking back at communion, and it's much easier to understand. One wise man said that life can only be understood looking backward. And when we have this final revelation of God to us, His Word, when we read the life and we examine the words of His Son, things that were not at all clear to the disciples make a lot of sense to us. And sometimes we ask ourselves, why are they so slow to get this? In Luke chapter 9, Jesus is going to bring them to the greatest question that anyone could ever ask you, and that question is simply this, who is Jesus exactly? We looked earlier, we did a, a, a Google search and Google produced almost enough results to the questions, who is Jesus? It produced almost enough results for every American to have three. Hundreds of millions of answers to the question, some of them alike, some of them very different, to this question, who is Jesus? That's what Jesus is going to ask the disciples that have been with him in Luke chapter 9. Check it out. Luke chapter 9, please. And I'm reading in verse 18. It says, Now it happened that as he was praying alone, his disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowd say that I am? And Jesus is asking this question 2,000 years ago, and it's just as relevant today as it was back then. Because 
watch it where it's in the summer, and thank God it's summer. It's a great time of year. But Christmas will be here soon enough, and sometime after Christmas we'll have, uh, we'll have Easter. And if you watch what's left of the newsstand, if you la- watch what few magazines are left in a magazine rack at the grocery store or the bookstore, you'll find two or three or four publications trying to answer this question, who is Jesus? Usually they'll find some dusty professor from somewhere in a tweed coat and a cool beard who will stroke his beard wisely and say, well, we now understand, and he'll spin out a theory of who Jesus was. Jesus is such an extraordinary figure that in his lifetime and to this day, 2,000 years later, people, the crowds, are still talking about it. So we asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. Well, that's interesting because John the Baptist has been murdered. John the Baptist was a close relative of Jesus, just a little bit older than Jesus is. And if you read the story of the life of Jesus, John the Baptist was sort of the lead blocker. He went out ahead of Jesus and he preached hard and his goal was to prepare people for the arrival of Jesus himself. In fact, John's gospel says, One day, John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, look, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And from that day forward, John the Baptist faded, and Jesus started rising. John's preaching one day got him killed, so it's surprising that the crowds say that Jesus is actually John the Baptist back from the dead. But others say, Elijah, well, that's even harder to believe. Elijah had died many centuries earlier. And others say that one of the prophets of old has risen. What do these three answers have in common? They said to Jesus, everybody says, you're someone who's now dead who used to speak for God. The only sense we can make, the crowds can make of you is that they remember They remember John the Baptist, and they've read in our scriptures about Elijah and other prophets. Nobody in their entire life has been like you. You must be someone else from long ago, someone who once spoke for God. And then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? I think one of the biggest injustices that is done to Jesus is that he comes across as this kind of mealy-mouthed, quiet, non-confrontational, nice, sweet guy. My grandmother would say a man who wouldn't have butter melt in his mouth. Just very harmless. Jesus is kind. He's loving. He's courageous. He's faithful. He's every single thing that is good, but he's not the slightest bit afraid to speak in clear terms, and in this case, to put people on the spot. The Greek language this is written in is emphatic. It reads, that's why I read it the way I did, who do you say that I am? You've told me about the crowds, what about you? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. If you know anything, if you've ever read the Gospels or watched a movie about the life of Jesus, you probably know a little bit about Peter. Of all the disciples, I find him the most relatable because he's out front, mouth first. Peter is always talking and rarely 
talking without wondering whether his brain, his heart, his heart and hands are willing to keep up and actually do what he said. This time, the outspoken one is exactly right. And he says something that is so meaningful. It's huge, but it's a little hidden by time and culture in our language. The Christ of God. Sounds big. What's it mean? Well, if you want to make a note in your Bible, Christ and Messiah are the same word. Christ is Greek, Messiah is Hebrew. And all that literally means is the anointed one. Peter is dealing with his culture and looking back at his scriptures. All his life, he's gone to synagogue, he's had the scriptures read to him. He knows some of it, at least by heart. And he remembers in Israel's history when God really got down to business in dealing with his people, every once in a while he would set someone very special apart. And he would signal publicly that they were going to speak for him or rule for him by having them anointed. King David, for instance, had been anointed. King David would write the Psalms. He would be famously a man after God's own heart. He would love God and give us psalms, some of which you've heard at big moments, funerals, people will read Psalm 23. This was as close in David's day as anyone could find someone who could speak to them about God and faithfully tell him what he was and where he was and what he was doing. And Peter says something much bigger than you're just one more person. He says, you are the Christ. In other words, you are the anointed one of God. You're the one we've been waiting for. This Bible I hold in my hands holds promises and prophecies that are a thousand years old and 700 and 500 years old, written by men who never could possibly have known each other, giving the life of Christ in detail in all that Peter has seen Jesus say and all that he's, all he's heard him say and all that he's watched him do, he has come to the realization this is no mere prophet. A prophet was an ordinary person who spoke for God. Jesus is more than that. He is the anointed one of God. You're the one we've been waiting for. And for once in his life, Peter who blew it so many times by what he said, got it exactly right. And he answers the question correctly. Which is why verse 21 is so surprising. He strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to tell this to no one. Does that surprise you? I mean, hasn't that been the whole point? What's this all been about? If Jesus doesn't want people at this point to know exactly who He is, why has He been doing all these things? And that has to do with the second question. Not only who is Jesus, but what do you want Him to do for you? See, if you look in your Bible, that's why I wanted you to have it open if you could. In Luke chapter 9, just a few verses above, You read the story of Jesus feeding 5,000 men at once, not counting the women and the children. He did all that, Luke says, with a kid's sack lunch. And John's gospel tells you the same story. That miracle is so extraordinary, it's told four different times in the Bible. Of the four gospels, the four portraits of Christ we have in Scripture, all four of the gospels mention this extraordinary feeding of this huge crowd of people with a boy's sack lunch. Luke doesn't say it, but John's gospel does. 
That was so amazing to people. John's gospel says they wanted to take him by force and make him king. Now, why did they want to do that? Because if you were a Jew living in the first century, you got up every day knowing that you were not a free man, a free woman. You walked under Roman authority. You had to pay taxes to a foreign government who had come in by force, subjugated your people, had completely changed your culture. They were allowing you to worship, but only as long as it did not bother them and create problems for them. The Jews in the first century were so subjugated that it was legal for a Roman soldier who was walking along, if he didn't feel like carrying whatever he happened to have on him, he could tell someone, hey, come here, carry this for me. And that person was obligated to go about a mile with them. Have you ever heard the phrase, go the extra mile? That's because Jesus told his disciples, if someone obligates you to go a mile with them, go another mile. Why? Because that would have been an extraordinary shock to that Roman soldier. The best possible witness that anybody could give to Jesus that a Roman soldier in that situation is for the guy to say, no, that's okay, I'll, I'll go a second mile. Well, you don't have to. No, I kind of want to. What? They lived with a Roman sandal firmly on their necks every day, and the crowds are watching this. And they wanted to make Jesus king by force because it had occurred to them, if this man can take a little lunch and feed a crowd, maybe this healer can be someone who hurts too. Maybe hands that restore and build up and enhance life and give life back, maybe they can be turned to harm. Maybe he can get these Roman pigs off of us. And Jesus is having nothing of it because every person that comes to Jesus, and this is where it gets personal. See, there's a danger in this sermon. If you just listen to me talking about them long ago and far away and you don't deal with Jesus and His words, you'll have wasted your time this morning. I really don't want to waste your time. I want you to take Jesus seriously in what he's saying here because what he's going to say next is one of the most unexpected things he ever could have said to his disciples. You understand it's perfectly clear to you because you live in Christendom 2,000 years after the cross of Jesus. The very next verse is not surprising to you. But what Jesus says after that to all of his disciples for all time, you may have read it before, but it's some of the hardest things that Jesus ever said. And because Jesus actually is a person, he really is the Christ of God. He is the one who Scripture says was with God from the beginning and is God himself. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 says that God spoke to Israel at many times and in many ways through prophets. But in the days of Jesus, God chose to spoke to us through his Son, by, to who, whom he appointed the heir of everything. In other words, Jesus owns all of creation and by whom God made everything that exists. It's not an isolated thought. It runs right through the New Testament. 
That this Jesus they're listening to is not just another man speaking for God. That Peter was absolutely right. He really was the Christ of God. And if he's that powerful, what people can't help but do, myself included, is bring our plans to him and tell him what we would like him to do for us. Let's be honest. Have you done that? Have you come to Jesus with your agenda? This is the most uncooperative crowd I think I've ever talked to. That was not a rhetorical question. I'm asking you to consider. Have you ever made a plan and brought it to Jesus for his blessing? Have you ever charged out the door, sprinkling it with prayer, saying, Jesus, I've decided that this is what I'm doing. Please help me as I go. Everybody does that. Because this question of what will he do for us always has an answer. Even when people realize that he's God on earth, he really is the word become flesh in the words of John, his closest disciple. Once you answer the question correctly, immediately if he's that powerful, if he's that good, then the question becomes what will he do? And the Jews had their answer. He's a liberator. He needs a white stallion. He needs a sword in his hand. He needs fire coming down from God to get rid of these people who we cannot get rid of. But Jesus has something entirely different in mind. Verse 23. I'm sorry, verse 22. The Son of Man, another messianic title, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus isn't coming, he says, to rule. That will come later. Right now, he's not coming to crush enemies. He's actually coming to be crushed himself. Look at it carefully. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. And that will be, the rejection will be so brutal, he says, that he will be killed, and then on the third day he will be raised. And if you keep reading in Luke chapter 9, even though Jesus is going to tell them this very thing again, it says they could not make any sense of it. They couldn't receive it. They couldn't believe it because they had already decided along with the crowd what sort of Savior he would be. You may remember that this same Peter would later run off at the mouth and forbid Jesus to die on the cross. And on the night they came to arrest him, he pulled what he meant to be a weapon. It was more like an everyday tool to this fisherman. And he tried to kill a man who was there to arrest Jesus. Jesus had to heal the man he wounded and tell Peter to put the weapon away because he had come to die. Are people still struggling with this question of what will he do for us? Yes. If I could be really practical, a lot of well-meaning churches, a lot of people who I believe actually do love the Lord, 2,000 years later, blessed in this amazing nation called the United States of America, have changed the message of Jesus a little bit, and it sounds a little bit like this. Come to Jesus and everything will get better. You got wayward kids? Come to Jesus. He'll fix your family up. Got trouble in your relationships? Come to Jesus. He'll fix those too. 
Come to Jesus and life will be immediately better. Life will get easier. And that's a dangerous message to present to people. Because if you look at the outcome of the lives of his first followers, their lives didn't get better. They got immeasurably more difficult. They, along with he, were treated increasingly and increasingly worse. And eventually, just about everybody who followed him of these original disciples was murdered because they refused to take back what they said about him. So if you're going to follow Jesus, it's important that you submit to his agenda, that you deal with the Jesus who is actually there, not the Jesus you imagine or not the Jesus you hope for, but the God who is actually there. And he's spelling out terms, and these words are for all of his disciples. We can understand verse 22 because we can look back at a time in history where Jesus was killed on the cross, but verse 23, that's current. That's ongoing. That's an invitation and a commandment to you if you would follow Jesus today. He said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Let's take that in reverse order. Verse 24 has what I call the Jesus paradox. And the Jesus paradox says something like this. You are going to be living by dying, and you're going to be saving by losing. See, the reason Jesus wouldn't submit to the crowds that made him king is he had an agenda that is higher and better than theirs. They didn't think it was so, but he had something bigger and better in mind for them. But verse 24 says, anybody who wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And it's really important as 21st century American Christians that you take Jesus at His word in verse 24 because the American dream is to hold on to your life and to make it as good as possible. And if you put Jesus in service of the American dream, you'll be following a different kind of Jesus, a Jesus that you've invented and not the Jesus who is actually there because He's the Lord. He really did make everything. He is the one of whom all the prophets spoke. He really is the Son and the Christ of God. In other words, He's in charge. And the most ridiculous thing I could ever do with a God like that is to walk into His presence and say, here's what I've decided and here is how I'd like you to help. The terms of His discipleship incumbent on you and me are in verse 23. He said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. There's three things there. Let's move through them one by one. If Jesus says you would come after him, in other words, if you would be with him, what's the first thing you have to do? Deny yourself. Let's be practical. Is that easy? No. You know who I love to affirm? me. You know who I love? Me. I love you too, but usually only to a point. If loving you starts to become uncomfortable for me, 
And isn't that the way it is? That's the struggle. Why is marriage hard? Because you've got two people who love to affirm themselves and love to follow themselves and think that they know what is right, living in very close quarters, maybe raising a family together. I'm telling you about me. I'm being honest with you about me, and I'm just offering a mirror so maybe you could see your own reflection. Much like yourself, I think I'm right all the time. Don't you think you're right? See, I think I'm right just about all the time when I discover to my chagrin that I'm wrong, I change my mind, and then something wonderful happens. I'm right again. (laughs) And I spend an absurd amount of time trying to convince everybody around me, beginning with my wife and my children, that I've got this figured out. And then Jesus comes, the Christ of God, the one who you can go to the book and you can check scriptures, prophecies written verifiably a thousand years before he was born, 700 years before he was born, 500 years before he was born. What sort of stuff? The place of his birth, how much money was given in his betrayal, the exact nature and reality of his death, the fact that he died between criminals and was buried in a rich man's tomb. I mean specific, check the words kinds of things are promised about Jesus, and now he really is the one. And Peter can't begin to get all his mind around of it, but he says the only person you could possibly be is the one that God promised and anointed. And Jesus says, okay, right now don't tell anybody because they have their own agenda. Here's my agenda. I'm going to suffer and die. That's where I'm headed. And then he says, check this out. This is so intense if you can sit there in the first century desk and listen to him. They're going to kill me. I'm not going to overthrow them. They're going to kill me. And if you want to follow me, Do you understand why so many of his followers quit? Because they brought Jesus their agenda, and as long as they thought he was on board with them, we're all going with Jesus. The minute he says he has his own agenda that does not include my plans, and my goodness, his agenda includes dying, I'm going to death. Come with me, everybody. You like the terms? And he started only with the first part. Look at it. He said, deny, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, and then it gets a lot worse. What's the next phrase? Take up his cross. How often? Someone said the trouble with the Christian life is it's so daily. Some people are living it on Sunday, and that's not really the Christian life. That's attendance. It's not life. Take up his cross daily. And this is so familiar in America that we say, well, you know, that's my cross to bear. My mother-in-law is a very difficult woman, hard to please. My son is lazy, and my rent's too high. That's my cross to bear. Heard stuff like this? It's not what Jesus meant at all. What was a cross? An instrument of execution. So years ago, we changed the name of this church from Central to Cross Point. We changed it from Central because nobody had any idea what we were Central to. Made absolutely no sense. We had a guy famously come in to mail a letter. He thought we were a post office. 
used to have this blue canopy outside. It kind of made sense, I guess. <laughs> we changed the name, Crosspoint. We put it in our logo because we wanted people, as time went on, and God willing, if Jesus doesn't return, 50, 100 years from now, this symbol of Christianity will endure. And everybody will understand that cross means Christian. And that's so well understood, and that's been so well settled for so long that for us, it's an adornment in a worship center. It's part of a logo. For many of you, it's a piece of jewelry. My class ring was a black stone with a gold cross in the middle of it. Beautiful. Appreciated the gift of it. In Jesus' day, it was nothing like that. A cross was only one thing. It was a roughly put together instrument, put together by Roman soldiers to kill a man in the most painful and humiliating way possible. So when Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. In other words, let him give up on his agenda. Got your life all figured out? Got a 10-year plan? May I continue to invite you along with me to submit that plan to Jesus day by day? He may have something entirely different in mind for you, and it may be much harder, but it's going to be much better because He really is this good. Because He's on His way to die, not for His own sins, He's on His way to die for yours and for mine. And the invitation is, let Him deny Himself, let him deny himself and take up His cross, how many times? Daily, because Jesus knows that His disciples want to put the cross down. Jesus, please run the show when it really matters. I've run into things that are too big for me. This mundane stuff, I've got this. That's the daily struggle of discipleship. And then he says, follow me. In other words, this isn't a static thing. This isn't a one-time decision. This is a daily surrendering. What does that look like in practical life? Tomorrow it will look for me like this. I must meet with Jesus and hear from Him in His Word. I must pray and open myself up to Him and confess my sins to Him and submit my plans to Him. And I must hear from Him, not in my dreams or my imaginations or my musings. I must hear from Him in His Word, this astonishing, miraculous, verifiable book that tells me all about God and can be checked and not only proven but also experienced. And I must gain direction from Him in the personal conversation of hearing from Him in His Word and speaking to Him in prayer. And then, and only then, will Jesus say that I am truly living. Because the American invitation is to hold on to your life and make it as good as you can for as long as you can until something that you don't really believe is going to happen to you finally happens to you, and that's you die. And many Americans don't believe that that's coming for them. As an American author said on his deathbed, somehow I thought, I always thought an exception would be made in my case. That's how people live. We think we're going to be, we think we're going to live forever. We think our plans are the best. And you're being invited into something much better. Jesus says, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? What will it be? What good will it do you if you live out your plans and try to hang on to your life but have it taken from you anyway? What does that look like in actual practical life? Let the Apostle Paul explain it. 
Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Would you read this with me? Let me explain to you what you're reading. You're reading the testimony of a man who once hated Jesus, who thought the whole thing was a fraud until he met him. And then Paul painfully, and he says about himself, I have learned. In other words, what Paul's telling you here wasn't immediate. He grew into it. He didn't trust Jesus on the famous Damascus road and get immediately into the person Jesus wanted him to be. If you're really following Jesus, three things will be happening to you. If you want to write this down, you will be believing Jesus. Day by day, decision by decision, denial of yourself by denial, taking up your cross daily, you will be believing Him. And I'm not talking to you about a one-time prayer where you sign a card, walk an aisle, then it goes out and makes absolutely no difference in your life. Twenty years later, you're the exact same person, maybe worse, but you hearken back to that prayer and figure that everything's okay. No, Jesus says, you come after me and you believe me enough to deny yourself, take up your cross, in other words, die to your plans and live to mine and come with me. You'll be believing Jesus. You'll also be becoming like Jesus. I've been here 13 years as your senior pastor. I think that's right. One of the beauties of staying in a church that long if the people stay too, you get to see what Jesus does when they take Him seriously and start following Him. Some of you, people I work with every day and people who are in this church just as everyday members are so different from the person I met five, six, seven, eight years ago. You remind me so much more of Jesus now than you did back then. Why? Because you've been taking up this invitation. You've been denying yourself not in a monastic beat yourself down because you deserve it. No, you deny yourself to obey Him. You give up on your plan because even though you don't understand it and even though it looks painful, you trust that His plan is better. You follow Him wherever He's going because you trust that He knows the way and the destination far better than you ever could. So you're believing Jesus, you're becoming like Jesus, and you're behaving like Jesus. Remember years ago, there was a What Would Jesus Do campaign? I mentioned in the first service, somebody gave me this bracelet. Amazingly, they still had theirs. And it must mean a lot to them because they said, you can use it, just don't lose it, okay? So here it is, tied on. If you see it laying around later, it's pretty loose. I didn't do a tremendously good job getting this thing secure. If you see it later, please return it, okay? Now, this was a good idea but it's a little short-sighted. Because unless you're becoming like Jesus, in other words, unless you're daily denying yourself, taking up your cross and doing what Jesus wants you to do, you're listening to Him, you're confessing things to Him, you're becoming more like Him, asking this question, it's the right question, but there might not be anything you can do about it. It, be my, it, like, it might be like asking a guy with two broken legs, well, what would a sprinter do in this situation? I said, well, he'd run really fast, but if you notice, my legs are broken. See, that's why so much Christian self-help is a failure, because it's inviting people to live a life that they have not yet been empowered to live because they don't have and trust Jesus for themselves. 
And it's wonderful advice, and it's true advice, but you're powerless to perform it unless you have the one who said he was the life in you already giving you life. But when you do, you become the kind of person who can say this with Paul. Read this with me. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. You see Paul's meaning? I'm living every day. I'm preaching. I'm going into synagogues until they kick me out. I'm proclaiming Christ crucified and risen again. I'm living my life, but it's not really me anymore. I have a life, but I live it the life that I now have in this body, in the flesh, I live by trust in the Son of God. And the only reason I do this and the reason I'm not alive anymore, the old Paul is gone and dead, I gave up on him because I met the one who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the invitation. And if it's presented in that way, very few people want anything to do with Jesus. Here's the hard dividing line. You tell people, come to Jesus, He'll bless all your plans and make them come true and make the life you want even better. Who wouldn't want that? But that's not His offer. His offer is to come with Him and live forever. Final question, what's on the line here? Everything. Look at verse 25, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? In other words, if you could have all your plans and dreams and you lose yourself, you lose the life that God gave you, what good will it be? It won't be any good at all. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. You see, the disciples were right on Jesus' ruling. They were wrong on the time. The same promises and prophecies that were made of his first coming promise his second. And there will be a time, Paul himself says, where every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, but not yet. Jesus stands in front of a dying world, telling them to trade lives with him. That he has been tempted in the words of Scripture in every way as a sinner is, but without sin. That he alone is sufficient to suffer and die for sin and save not only himself, but to save anyone who trusts him. And what that extraordinary Christian life looks like is you pray every day to the God who is actually there. You read his actual word to you, which his Holy Spirit amazingly applies person to person, meeting by meeting. In other words, Jesus tomorrow, when people open their Bibles all across this globe, will speak to hundreds of millions of individual disciples, and He will tell them, at this season in your life, here's what I want. You come with me. And some brave, trusting, loving few will trust Him enough to put it into action. So many of you are doing it, and that's the most extraordinary thing of being here all these years. What am I trying to tell you, church? Simply this. If you're ever going to live for Jesus, you have to die to yourself. 
You think that your money belongs to you. You insist on keeping it for yourself. Jesus says you'll lose it. Your life, your health, all the blessings that you have in your life, they are a gift from God, a temporary gift from God, a stewardship, if you will. Something that is briefly placed in your hands, your intelligence, your health, your resources, your job, your training, your friendships, all the good things that Jesus has lavished into your life, they are for you, but they are for God's purpose. And if you live for Him, you'll be able to enjoy Him and His rewards forever. But that will take a daily death to self. It's the hardest and the most beautiful thing you'll ever do. And some of you need to trust Jesus as Savior this morning. You've been putting Him off. You've been waiting to learn more. You think you've got to have it all figured out. You think that you've got to make a few more deposits. Listen, Jesus died for sinners. If you're a sinner who is willing to tell Jesus that you're sorry for your sins and you trust Him for life instead of yourself, you're qualified for salvation this morning. Many of you, the vast majority of you, are already following Him. Let's not waste it. Because here's what I'm convinced of, church. You don't have to look very broadly in our culture. You don't have to read too many headlines to see that the United States is rapidly changing. I think a time of sifting and testing is coming where people who have embraced their idea of Jesus will be tested in a lot of different ways, some that aren't even predictable at this point, and you will be asked through actions, words, and decisions, do you really love Him? Do you really live for Him? Will you really stand here with Him? And I predict in five or certainly ten years, we're going to find out some things, and there's going to be a lot of surprises. The only way to truly save your life, to actually live your life, is to trust the one and follow the one who is life. But to live for Jesus, we have to die to ourselves. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, if there's someone here who doesn't know you as Savior, I pray that they would turn to you right now with a humble heart with the knowledge and the understanding you've already given them and say to you that they make you boss, they make you Lord, they put you in charge of their life. That they are sorry for their sin. They're giving up on saving themselves and they're trusting you to do it instead. Lord, may there be wholehearted disciples in this church. That's why we exist, to be and make wholehearted disciples who can't be swayed, who can't be bought, who can't be pressured out of turning our backs on you, but who follow you, Lord, with tears, with trembling, with fear often, but ultimately believing you, becoming a little bit more like you every day and behaving as you would in this time and in this place. Help us to love when we're hated. Help us to pray for those who abuse us. Help us, Lord, to remind people of you and to live for you by dying to our dream and our plan of what we should have been before we met you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.